Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jay Feldstein and Dean Miller. Dr. Feldstein is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, or PCOM for short. In this role, Dr. Feldstein, in conjunction with the Board of Trustees, supervises and controls all of the business and affairs of the institution. Dean serves as Managing Director of the PCOM Primary Care Innovation Fund, which is a venture capital fund focused on healthcare innovations, particularly those focused on primary care. And we've had a lot of guests on Ray's line, including Aaron Bali of Carbon Health, who are focused on primary care. So I'm excited to hear about his, uh, his take on it. Uh, before we get started, I would like to thank our investor and advisor, Alan Patrikoff, who first introduced me to one of PCOM's board members, Tom Gravina, who did the intro to Jay Feldstein as well. So thanks so much, Jay and Dean, for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Shiv. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you, Shiv. So we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in the careers they're currently in. And so let's start with you, Dr. Feldstein. What got you interested in osteopathic medicine and then becoming a president of a university? So I have to go back a long time from a historical perspective. Actually, my exposure to osteopathic medicine started when the summer of 11th grade in high school, when I was a waiter at an overnight camp. And one of the counselors of the bunks that I was responsible for was a second year DO student at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. So we became very friendly over the course of the summer. He educated me on osteopathic medicine, its holistic philosophy, and it stayed with me throughout my, you know, rest of high school and college career. And I was one of these guys who always wanted to be a doctor. So when I was applying to medical school, I wanted to become an osteopathic physician because I really believed in a holistic philosophy. And then I, I graduated. I did emergency medicine residency. I practiced emergency medicine for 10 years. Then I was in the insurance world for 15 years. And one day I got an email from a friend who uh, was best friends with the head of the search committee for the new president and CEO of PCOM. And he said, do you know anyone? And by the way, I told him I thought you would be great. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not an academician. I mean, I've been a practicing physician. I'm really on the business side of things. He goes, no, I think you're exactly what they're looking for. And one thing led to another. And here I am in year seven. It's not like I ever planned to be the college president and come back to my alma mater. But the idea, the concept of really helping to create the physician of the future, as well as our other healthcare professionals, really appealed to me. So that's how I ended up here. That's pretty pretty amazing backstory. Did you ever keep in touch with your, your friend in the camp who was in osteopathic medicine? In my fourth year of medical school, I showed up for a neurology elective at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in the city of Philadelphia, and the chief resident on that service was that same counselor. So we reunited basically seven years later. You know, I as a medical student, he is a chief resident. So it was pretty wild. That's pretty cool. And hopefully, if he's, hopefully he's still practicing around, then uh, he knows that you are the president now of, of the university he went to. So. Yeah, it's life's funny sometimes the way it works out. Totally. Great. Switching gears to Dean, can you tell us a bit about your background and then specifically, you know, about how you got into venture capital and then an overview of the PCOM Primary Care Innovation Fund would be great. Yeah, happy to. Actually, I'll, I'll relate it to Jay's experience because I had the polar opposite experience. When I was in high school, I had really bad science teachers. I say that, but it's probably not true, but at least they didn't catch my attention. So I left high school and went into college 
avoiding biology, chemistry, and everything else. I was very much focused on business. And that came just really having some entrepreneurs in my family and a desire to do so. And so healthcare was never on my radar for you know, quite a number of years. So you know, my genesis coming through the business world was as an operator, you know, uh, helping to build companies. And post an experience in business school, I got more involved in the entrepreneurial side of the world and started working with startups, which introduced, introduced me to venture capital. Now, this was back in the late 90s really as the internet 1.0 was taking off. And so it was a really interesting education. And while I was not a, a technologist in terms of a programmer, I was really deep in technology as the business partner with a lot of enterprise technology development. And so my first foray into venture capital, again, in those uh, late uh, 90s was with Safeguard Scientifics and helping to build a fund that came out of there. Now, the interesting and point that I'll now converge with Jay's story is about two years into that, we knew we had to diversify into healthcare. And we hired a guy who was a business guy coming from the healthcare world. And I started working on deals with him, maybe somewhat reluctantly, but I realized that I missed a passion. Now, I will relate that I grew up in a family with a terrible heart and familial uh, disease history. So I had a front seat view of a lot of, of uh, uh, hospitals, medical conditions, and doctor's visits. So I kind of had that in my brain, but as I started doing these deals, I was enamored. And really where I fell out was less on the therapeutics investing, which I you know, had done some of, but on the intersection of technology and healthcare. And that became a passion. My intersection with Jay was interesting because you know, in my career, I'd worked with a number of different institutions, large hospitals, medical centers, universities, to help them start their venture capital activities, which always involved philanthropic initiatives or strategic initiatives. A mutual connection introduced us. And when I asked Jay the first question, hey, why do you want to start a venture fund? He said, honestly, I want to make money. And I said, okay, I'm listening. And so, you know, Jay's vision for the, the PCOM Primary Care Innovation Fund, or as I like to say, PCOM Innovation Fund, really was to enhance the university in a number of ways. And one of them, and one of those primary ones was financial. But again, as he shared, you know, they're, they're educating the next generation of clinicians that are going to go out and serve patients really around the globe. And being connected into the next generation of healthcare innovations is really critical. So that really was the genesis of the fund. I worked, again, to build it, put together the investment thesis, launch it uh, a couple of years ago. The size and scope of what PCOM does is pretty remarkable. And when I first heard that you all have a venture capital fund, I, I don't even know of any other medical school that, that has one. I know several, like we work with Kaiser Permanente, the health system and the medical school, and Kaiser has a venture fund, but it's not the same as like a medical school run. So can we zoom out real quick? And obviously we'll get into your investment thesis as well, but can we talk about PCOM a bit? Obviously a lot of our students actually go to PCOM and, and people know PCOM as well. But for those who don't, you know, can you give us a sense of the size and scope? How many alumni do you have, students, campuses? You have several campuses, I know. Anything else you want to share? Sure. I mean, we're, we're one of the oldest osteopathic medical schools in the country. We've been around for, I think it's 120 years right now, probably going on 121. Uh, we have three campuses. We have our Philadelphia campus. We have two campuses in Georgia, one outside of Atlanta in a suburb, Gwinnett County. And we also have one we just opened last year 
in Moultrie, Georgia, and with the goal of really, really trying to address rural healthcare needs. You know, we've always been committed to urban and rural underserved populations. So on our Philadelphia campus, obviously we have our DO program, which is our largest. We have 275 students per class. We have a physician's assistant program. As long as the full array of psychology programs and mental health counseling at a master's level, as well as a PsyD program. In Georgia, in Swanee, we have a DO program, a class size of 125. We have a pharmacy school. We have a PT program and a PA program as well as biomedical sciences on all three campuses for people trying to uh, get into professional school or just getting additional education in science at a graduate level. And currently, we just have our DO class, basically 49 in Moultrie, Georgia. And we've added biomedical sciences and we have to graduate our first class there before we're able to increase the class size. So we've got 14,000 alumni across the country and world, DO, psychology, PA. So we're a rather large institution. That's tremendous, the size and scope you all have done. And the reason, again, we call this podcast Raise the Line is it's about enhancing or improving healthcare capacity. So you know, you've gotten 14,000 more clinicians out in the front lines hopefully we're addressing, many of whom are addressing COVID right now. And so we'll get into how PCOM has adjusted because of COVID this year. That's a question we ask all of the institutions that we have on the on the podcast. But just kind of to go back to Dean, can you talk a bit about the fund, what investments you've made, and like kind of how you're looking at making investments in digital health, anything that our audience should know about that? Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me first say this. There's a lot of discussion right now about you know the broken model of higher education. And we can probably have a whole other series of podcasts to discuss and debate that. As an outsider looking in as a business person, I'm really impressed with how PCOM is run as a business. Yeah, to me, anything that's worthwhile uh, doing needs to be scalable and sustainable. And Jay has proven his ability to lead the organization through that really admirably. You know, the reason that they're able to form a traditionally structured for-profit venture fund is because of the success of the model that they've built. So again, uh, you, you, it's the only reason we're sitting here today talking about this fund is because of what they've done as an institution and how they've built on it. But you know, in, in talking about the fund, you know, we worked together to put together the investment thesis. And again, I had a couple of decades of experience, probably Shiv to say what I didn't want to do as much as what I did want to do. And so the way I would describe the fund, you mentioned digital health, it's digital health and med tech focused. It is stage agnostic with a bias toward commercial stage. It's geography agnostic across the U.S. We haven't done anything internationally. You know, certainly could contemplate that into the future. It's check, check agnostic within a range generally of 100,000 up to 5 million plus. And one of the things that we focus on from a, a capital perspective is reducing the capital risk. So we will not go in solo into an investment. We always like to co-invest with like-minded strategic, I should say, actually not strategic, but financial investors, you know, that we know and can work with closely. Yeah, in terms of spaces, uh, we also have a number of other biases. Again, we talked about digital health and med tech. There are a lot of great, uh, you know, different businesses within the space, generally speaking. Healthcare is a big spot, but we definitely have a bias toward clinical outcomes. Yeah, does that mean we'll never invest in the uh, next greatest healthcare billing software? 
No, but we generally spend most of our time looking at clinical outcomes. You know, when we talk about the primary care focus, and that's really broadly defined, we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about those unaddressed areas, you know, the patient outcome world within uh, chronic disease states, et cetera, that still have a lot of, a lot of space to go in terms of solving real problems and, and bringing solutions to patients. You know, a couple other biases. It's really challenging to sell into healthcare. It's a necessary evil, but we do like products and services that have a direct-to-customer or direct-to-consumer approach. I can talk about a couple of those, you know, that uh, are in our portfolio. And I'm sure there's other biases, you know, we'll talk about as we, we go on with it. But again, we've made eight investments in the past couple of years. We've had two exits in that time period. We had a company, Accolade, that we invested in that went public earlier this summer. And uh, we also sold a company called In Demand Interpretation, a Seattle-based company that was a, a trade sale after about a year, actually, of investing. So both, both pretty good outcomes to date, knock on wood. Again, have six other investments that we made, one that we shut down. And so this you know, is a natural course of obviously venture investing, depending on the stages that you get involved in. Yeah, I'll point out uh, maybe two uh, for this conversation, and we can talk about as many as you want, but Accolade's an interesting one. When I talk about stage agnostic, we invested in this after it was an abs- you know, very much a proven company in a growth stage. You know, it's a company that serves patients, but does so uh, not through healthcare institutions so much as direct to uh, corporations that have self-insured healthcare programs. And so they serve really as uh, the first point of medical contact for the employees and families of those employers to help them navigate healthcare. Now that sounds great. It sounds like there's about 500 companies that do that. But one of the things that Accolade has done quite successfully is the integration of technology into that approach, as well as measurement. And they can demonstrate the actual savings, cost savings that they have been able to garner for their customers, those employers that are quite significant. So if you think about healthcare and the expense of it and how it rises every year to the tune of seven to eight plus percent, they're able to hold that at cost or at a minimum of percent increase. It's very significant. So outcomes, this is one of the things that they measure and one of the reasons they get paid for what they do. Another company, local company called Vibe, uh, and I say local based in Philadelphia. And this is a company that we did a larger investment into because we really believed uh, that it was a unique model in the urgent care space. So again, a lot of companies out there delivering urgent care, primary care, and different models. A lot of them actually created by institutions who really don't understand how to consumerize healthcare. What I mean by that is, you know, they take that model of healthcare and they push it out their doors to patients with you know, vernacular approaches that aren't exactly you know, consumer friendly. Vibe is a very consumer centric model for urgent care with a dozen centers in and around Philadelphia as its first market that's been quite successful in developing a brand, particularly in markets where access is an issue. And so you're not gonna find them quite honestly in really wealthy communities with a lot of a host of different options. There are in other communities, quite honestly, some that are medical deserts in serving patients in those areas that don't have good options for care. And in this case, for uh, urgent care and urgent care like primary care. Yeah, as with anything, and I think you'll hear this from uh, all the investors, certainly that you've had on this program, we invest in management, right? There's great businesses. Yes, you got to raise capital, but management is what makes things happen. 
And as we look at our companies, I think, you know, we're most proud of the, the people that we backed. And listen, it's not lost to me that those same people that we're backing are serving patients just the way that your listeners are either currently or hope to serve patients. So in, in many ways, we're all in this together. That's a wonderful description. And actually, on the, on the accolade front, I was going to make that connection. We had another guest on Ray's line, uh, Shantanu Nandi, who's the chief medical officer of Accolade. So our audience should be quite familiar with that business. Um, and I actually didn't realize that you had uh, invested at our growth stage, which is great. Turning back to, to you, Dr. Feldstein, we've had many deans and presidents of universities on, on Ray's line, including most recently George Daly from Harvard Med School. And I was fascinated by how, you know, come March, when the COVID pandemic started really taking hold in the U.S., how they had to change their operations um, as both a teaching hospital as well as an educational institution with classroom activities. Could you give us a sense of how the PCOM had to adjust its operations and where you are right now and looking into 2021, you know, what do you think are the changes that are going to stick? Like, are you doing telemedicine training for your, your students, for example? And what, are, what do you think may not stick? So in March, and what's been constant since then and will continue till everyone's vaccinated and we have herd immunity is the safety and health of our students, faculty, staff, and patients. So that's been the guiding North Star through this entire process because the science evolved in front of us. Every couple of weeks, there was a new recommendation from the CDC. So we basically on a Friday pivoted to a Monday to all virtual classrooms. And we went virtual over a weekend. And uh, our faculty was prepared for it, our technology was prepared for it. And we continued that really you know, through the summer. Uh, a lot of our third and fourth year students and our PA students who were experiential learnings were actually kicked out of the hospitals in the early stages because the hospitals didn't know what to do with them. They were so concerned, there was a lack of PPE. So we had to virtualize their experiential curriculum and we had to put that together rapidly as well. And fortunately, you know, by June and July, they were allowed back in to their educational experiential settings. So since that time, we've gone to the hybrid model in, in fall that you know, classes that needed to be in-person, hands-on, physical diagnosis skills, osteopathic manipulation skills. We did that in person. We did it with the appropriate social distancing. We fit tested everyone for N95 respirators. We made sure that your lab partner was your lab partner for life. And we did everything we could to make everybody safe. We continued that till this Thanksgiving. We tested everyone who came back to campus and had a very low positive rate We'll continue to test everybody when they return, and we'll probably go to testing twice a week. We'll probably go to rapid antigen testing. If you can do it more frequently, you can make up for the loss in the sensitivity and specificity, because we know how important the hands-on training is. We've worked really hard to keep people on their academic schedules. What we'll keep is the sense that we'll probably always have a virtual component to lectures now. But make it an option if you want to come to class, more than happy to have you sit in a lecture hall. If it's better for you to learn from home or in a park on your laptop, so be it. From a clinical healthcare delivery, we had to pivot from inpatient face-to-face -to, -face to telemedicine. 
And telemedicine's always been kind of part of the educational process for those third and fourth year students. Now we're gonna integrate it into the curriculum in the first and second year as well. So telemedicine is here to stay. In what capacity? We'll have to see how things shake out. I think a lot of it's determined by reimbursement, quite frankly, Shiv. You know, I, I tease people, telemedicine's been around for physicians as long as there's been a telephone. They just weren't paid for it. You know, I remember you know, as a child, my mother calling the pediatrician, you know, and, and pediatricians, and with my friends in the early years of practice, were just managing their patients over the telephone on the weekends and nights. And that was just part of the service. But now, the, the way it's evolved, now it's a separate paid for service. So I think reimbursement will drive a lot of how much telemedicine goes forward. Because the way insurance companies are reimbursing right now is the same as an in-person visit. Yeah, that's a really, really insightful way to put it as well. So, you know, what do you think the lasting changes are to the healthcare system beyond telemedicine because of COVID? anything from supply chain to direct to consumer models. A lot of the people we've had on the podcast are people who are creating companies that are going direct to the patients, as mentioned, companies like 23andMe and Care Fertility and others. So either one of you could take that to begin. I'll go first, all the above. And I think you'll see tremendous innovation. Never let a good crisis go to waste. So I think you'll see people, you know, everything we can do to increase the access, whether it be, you know, technologically based, whether it be physically based, all access points. I think one of the things that COVID showed us, it basically showed all the cracks in the healthcare system, especially in terms of disparities and, and how you know it's really adversely affected our minority populations that struggle with housing, with food insecurity, have really been brought to bear with the really adverse health outcomes. So we need to address those. I, I think you're gonna to start to see companies that are gonna address the social economic disparities that need to be addressed as actual healthcare companies in a way to improve health outcomes. So Dina, I'll let you take that from a, a business standpoint. Yeah, I mean, get a little more specific. We spent a lot of time thinking about, talking about and looking at behavioral health which is you know, core to you know, the DO, the whole person, um, treating the whole person, and a huge need, and only highlighted further in you know, a pandemic environment with social separation, and again, with the disparity in terms of access, impact, et cetera. Later on that, the social injustice unrest that you know, we've experienced as a country, it's created real need. Now that real need was there before, but now all of a sudden people are much more acutely aware of it. And there are really good treatment approaches that still have real issues around access, insurance, you know, and other forms of payment, et cetera. Agree with Jay that we're gonna see a, a multitude of things. You know, that's one of those areas. We also think, talk a lot about the consumerization of healthcare. I mentioned that with Vibe. And there is more being placed on the patient in terms of self-advocacy, but also economic burden. There are good aspects about that and bad aspects about that. And, you know, we certainly hope and we see, you know, some emerging trends you know, in terms of patients. The education of patients around being advocates for their health care is, is not a no-brainer. We, again, talk about this all the time, whether you're talking about diabetes, obesity, 
a host of areas, again, behavioral health. Meeting patients where they are with really good quality of care, um, so both at access but also affordability, is not a no-brainer. You look at the institutions that deliver healthcare historically, you know, they have significant infrastructure that they need to support in order to do that, which is why when you get an actual bill from some of these institutions, it's jaw-dropping. Like, how is that possible that that costs that much? Well, you know, these are large, large institutions with a lot of quote-unquote mouths to feed. So does that mean that there's going to be, you know, the, the, the food truck mentality of serving healthcare. Yeah, that might not be as far as you go, right? But, you know, you do still want to uh, maintain or in many cases even elevate care and integrating really good tools for identification, but ultimately for treatment in a host of different ways that allow patients actually to more readily pay, again, appropriate amounts directly because that's the way we're moving are some of the things that we're looking at in that regard. By the way, it all comes back to this. Now, I told you I'd throw in some more biases. Yeah, I, I talked about clinical outcome. Clinical data matters, right? Like, so when we look at digital health or you know, med tech kind of comes with data naturally, but digital health does not. So when we look at things, we want to see, even if it doesn't have to go through the same, you know, the same ringer with the FDA as a therapeutic, we want to see therapeutic-like data in terms of outcomes. And again, we spent a lot of time in that regard. You both have hit on a number of topics that have come up in the past. We, we One of our recent guests, too, is Eric Topol, who I know, Dean, I know we've spoken about before. And he talks about some of those trends that you just mentioned. The, the Patient Will See You Now is one of his most famous books about the consumerization. But it is a mixed bag. One of the interesting opportunities, I think, that being like one of the only med schools or maybe the only you know health professional school out there with a venture fund is how some of the innovations that, Dean, you're seeing and obviously JUC as well, could go into you know, how you do your training, right? So knowing that telemedicine is probably here to stay if the reimbursement keeps up, will seep into the curriculum as well so that your physicians and PTs and pharmacists that you're training at PCOM will be equipped for this new uh, way of providing care. Uh, I know we're coming up on time, so I only have two last questions. The first is what advice would you give to people considering careers in healthcare? We've heard some are afraid of going into healthcare now, given you know the burnout, moral injury that's happening, the lack of PPE and lack of staff really that are available to to keep up these ICUs with record hospitalizations. Whereas others are diving in because you know there's no greater time that we've needed healthcare professionals, it seems. And so maybe that's a question for you first, Jay. Is what do you what advice do you give your current PCOM students or people considering going into healthcare careers? Yes. And I say that, Shiv, because you're right on both accounts, but applications to the DO program across the country have never been higher. They're up close to 12%, which is just insane. And to me, if you want to be a healthcare provider, whether it be a physician's physician assistant, a clinician, now's the time. I mean, this is what you do it for. Okay. I mean, if you're about, you know, serving and helping people, this is when you need it. In, in the middle of a pandemic, it's got to be the most exciting time to be a healthcare professional in training. I mean, history, you are living history. And it just forces you to be nimble. It forces you to be creative. It forces you to be the person you really want to be in healthcare. So I would say now more than ever is the greatest time in history to be a healthcare provider. And there's so many tools available to people, especially from an educational standpoint, you know, and the services that your company provides. 
you know, everybody learns differently. And it's all about giving individuals the opportunities so they can learn best. So I thank you for what you're doing at Osmosis for that. Thank you. That's inspiring. Let me, uh, you know, as a non-clinician, let me just add to that. You know, Jay talked about the cracks in healthcare becoming more apparent in COVID. And by the way, we've had cracks in healthcare for a long time. But if you think about the cracks, and I spent a lot of time looking at and talking about them, it's never about the quality of the clinicians. You know, the dedicated clinicians, you know, they're trained by institutions like PCOM that are supported by organizations like Osmosis. They are the heart of the system. The cracks are all around them. And so the more that we can do, again, to attract passionate people that want to be clinicians and play a role in healthcare, but again, provide the tools and ability to effectively treat patients with really good outcomes, yeah, the better off we're going to be. And again, that's going to be new models. It's going to be new companies. It's going to be you know, data-driven approaches. Thank you both for those kind words, but also just the inspirational words for our audience, because we do have a lot of people who listen to osmosis who are pre-health right now. So they're still deciding whether what program they want to go to. They want to become nurses or doctors or, or whatnot. And I think it's inspirational to hear that this is a good time to continue pursuing it. You asked for a piece of advice, by the way. I would say think like an entrepreneur too. We see a lot of you know, clinicians, not all are certainly well-suited to do this, but a lot of clinicians that become entrepreneurs, Jay is a great example, you know, that get in there and say, you know what, I want to change this piece of healthcare and just you know, do an incredible job of it. Totally. I can personally relate to that too, having you know, taken a break. I'm on my seventh year of leave from Hopkins Med School while starting osmosis and running osmosis. And I have a lot of other friends who've done this, including... Um, Sean Duffy, who you may know runs Omada, he, he dropped out of Harvard Med to do Omada Health, which is obviously doing a great, great work in preventing people from pre-diabetes getting into diabetes. Is there anything else you want to share about PCOM, about the Innovation Fund, about trends in healthcare or anything else? Well, we're open for investments. So yeah, they can send them through you or however you want to share, but we certainly are, are interested in innovations that you know, your audience might come across that we should take a look at. Uh, the, the only thing that I would add is you know, I, I came to PCOM to help create the physician of the future, the healthcare provider of the future, and the future's bright. And any, anybody who wants to join us, come join us, because it's a great journey, and the healthcare professions are the best professions there are. So that, that, that's my closing uh, words of wisdom for the day, Shiv. That's a great note to end on. And so with that, Dean and Dr. Feldstein, really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you do every day to, to raise line and improve healthcare capacity. Thank you. Thank you. With that, I'm Shiv Viglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>